We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Just anybody. Help. You know, I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 231 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, your host. Our topic today is guidelines for family caregivers caring for family members living with serious mental illnesses. Family caregivers face many, far too many, challenges caring for family members living with serious mental illnesses such as Alzheimer's disease, bipolar disorder, clinical depression and schizophrenia. One challenge for family caregivers occurs when they fear that a family member is undergoing a mental illness emergency. Too often, family caregivers are blocked from exchanging information about their family member with healthcare systems and healthcare professionals. Another challenge is that healthcare systems describe them, family caregivers, as caregivers. Now, caregiver describes paid caregivers and also family caregivers. Confusion arises out of a labor relations problem. No big employers, which healthcare systems are, want to be criticized for relying on unpaid labor, which family caregivers are. And yet another challenge is that family caregivers are too often exhausted psychologically, physically, and financially by their family caregiving, which is why our topic today, Guidelines for Family Caregivers, Caring for Family Members Living with Serious Mental Illnesses, is so important. To discuss it, our guests are Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Ella Amir. Chris is a non-government director of the Mental Health Commission of Canada. He's the executive director of the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society and the CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada. He serves on numerous boards and committees, including the Mood Disorders Society of Canada, the National Network on Mental Health, the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health, and several ethics committees. With an earned doctorate, He is certified as a psychosocial rehabilitation practitioner and as an assist suicide intervention trainer. He sees mental illness as an issue not only in health, but also in social justice. Ella is executive director of AMI Quebec. Under her leadership, the organization has become one of the principal resources in Quebec for families struggling to cope with mental illness. 
She chaired the Family Caregivers Advisory Committee for the Mental Health Commission of Canada until 2012 and now is a member of the Advisory Council of the Commission. She led the development of the Commission's National Guidelines for a Comprehensive Service System to support family caregivers of adults with mental health problems and illnesses. She holds a PhD in Psychology and Applied Human Sciences and an MBA. So welcome to the show, Priscilla. A pleasure. Thank you for having us. Right. First question for you, Chris. Please tell us more about your work with the Schizophrenia Society of Canada and with the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Chris? Well, it's been my pleasure to be the CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada uh, now beginning eight years, and our mission is to improve the quality of life for, for those who are affected by schizophrenia and psychosis. So therefore, working with the 10 provincial schizophrenia societies, uh, we provide supports and services and workshops and consultations uh, for families, uh, for people living with mental illness and uh, their their friends. And uh, it's been my joy to be with the commission uh, for six years as we have now developed uh, and released our first ever mental health strategy for Canada. Uh, we're beginning to um, uh, release our project that's an anti-stigma project. Uh, uh, an initiative called Opening Minds, as well as having developed a knowledge exchange uh, center. And I'm also a family member, a brother with schizophrenia, another brother with bipolar disorder, and my father who experienced bipolar disorder, the latter two who suicided. Ella, question for you. Please tell us more about your work with ME Quebec and with the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Okay. Um, I've been working with families for the past 23 years uh, under the auspices of AMI Quebec, which is the first family association in Quebec. Um, in, in my capacity uh, as the director of AMI Quebec, um, I have worked extensively to reach out to families, not only in Montreal, but uh, throughout the province of Quebec, and try to assist families in uh, all possible way, ways through support, information, guidance, and advocacy. Uh, so, obviously, the, the uh, challenges of uh, family caregivers have been very close to my heart, and I have been working hard to uh, try to alleviate some of the stress and pressure that is uh, often associated with caregiving. Uh, this is what also led me to, uh, to participate in the work of the Mental Health Commission of Canada. And uh, as you mentioned, I chaired the Family Caregivers Advisory Committee from the beginning of the commission. And I have to say that uh, even though there was a Family Caregivers Advisory Committee from day one, uh, to integrate the importance of family caregiving even into the psyche of the commission, of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, has been a challenge. But I have to say that after six years, I uh, believe that we have uh, gone uh, uh, a good distance. We still have the way to go. Right. Now, back to you, Chris, please. Why did the Mental Health Commission of Canada produce the national guidelines um, to support family caregivers of adults with mental health problems and illnesses? Why did they do that? Well, you certainly had people like Ella and the members of the Family Advisory Committee uh, who passionately advocated that this should be a priority of the Commission amongst its uh, many projects. And simply, uh, the guidelines were needed because there are no guidelines. There were no guidelines 
up until this point. Uh, another reason why they are important is because doctors generally are not trained or do not receive enough information on how to work with families or engage family members of their patients diagnosed with the mental illness. And so it's been a major uh, concern and grief and frustration to family members who can't get information from the doctor about their loved ones. I mean, getting a diagnosis of mental illness like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder is, is, is traumatic and involves grief and despair. And that's not even speaking about the um, stigma associated. So finally, the guidelines are there to, to, to provide guidance to system planners and policymakers and service providers to assist them in planning and provision of mental health care services and, and to give a voice to many of the concerns and needs of family caregivers. Right. Ella, please summarize the National Guidelines observations about the support needed by family caregivers to enable them to provide the best possible care to an adult living with mental illness, while also at the same time sustaining, that is the family caregivers, sustaining their own well-being. Ella? Right. Uh, well, you know, uh, having uh, been uh, working with family caregivers for so many years, I see that what I uh, uh, see times and again is the 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 the, um, bird, the burden and the chronic stress that family caregivers are faced with when they have to fulfill their caregiving responsibilities. Unlike some other caregiving um, roles, uh, when it comes to the context of mental illness, uh, caregiving is very often a long-term um, uh, preoccupation. And uh, unfortunately, it is still not being recognized that uh, family caregivers who are well-supported and well-informed uh, uh, are likely to, uh, to, be, to, to, to do a better job when it comes to their uh, ill relatives. At the same time, we also know that family caregivers who are not well-supported pay, as you indicated earlier, pay with their own well-being. Uh, physically, emotionally, financially, and uh, family caregivers who are challenged on an ongoing basis for such a long time are unlikely to fulfill their responsibilities in very effective way. So clearly, uh, having guidelines that would allow a proper support for families is going to uh, uh, is going to, uh, to 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 increase their own. Uh, is going to increase the benefits for their own relatives, but at the same time also for themselves and to society at large because the uh, saving uh, that is associated with unpaid caregiving is enormous. And if we had to, uh, to uh, replace it with paid caregiving, uh, the system would be even poorer than it is today. Now, I'm going to go back to Chris just for a quick question. Roughly speaking, how, what proportion of adults or children, young people with schizophrenia are being cared for by family caregivers at home? Well, that's a great question because I actually was going to answer that anyway. About 25% of people who develop a mental illness, we, we, we call it a severe or persistent mental illness in England. They call it an enduring mental illness. And certainly uh, families do play the role of, of a caregiver. Uh, not all family members have to play the role or be in the role of a caregiver because the person is able to manage their health uh, very, very well. Um, 
but many people with enduring mental illnesses uh, live with their families. Uh, approximately 50% um, of people with schizophrenia, for example, live with a family member. And so the, the family is, is part of the support system. So the implications uh, for family caregivers is that it's a sense of empowerment for them. It's a recognition that families are part of the healing process. They're part of the recovery process. Uh, that means that uh, families need to know as much as possible about mental illnesses, uh, about the myths and misunderstandings. They need to understand recovery, that it can happen, uh, how mental illnesses are treated, uh, they need to know what they can do to help and how to be very helpful. And, um, and families can also provide valuable information uh, right. to, to doctors. For example, if the person is suicidal, I mean, they may, 25% of, of people uh, will not tell their doctor they're, they're suicidal, uh, but often they will give indications to their family members, and family members need to be able to pass that information on to, to the doctors. Chris, I'm just going to stop you there because we'll talk about some of those things in a following segment, but I also want to get a quick question in with Ella. Ella, you talked about the way in which, the ways in which uh, family caregivers subsidize the healthcare system or the mental healthcare system. Have you any numbers? Do you know, have you any sense of just how big that subsidy is well, for Canada? Well, you know, I think that in the guidelines there is a number that I can't really remember offhand, but I think that it was something around $5 billion a year. Now, uh, I, I can't really break it down into more detailed uh, budget, but, you know, we know that there is a, uh, a great deal of saving that uh, the, the, the system would have uh, uh, faced if it was not for non-paid uh, caregivers. But I just wanted to add something to, you know, to the last question that you asked Chris, because I think that it's important to, re- to recognize that uh, when family caregivers don't have their ill relative living with them, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are not involved in their caregiving. Uh, there were a number of studies that uh, uh, indicated and showed that caregiving uh, is not necessarily, or the burden that is associated with caregiving caregiving is not necessarily related to the fact that the relatives live at home with their caregivers. There are myriad of tasks that caregivers fulfill, uh, and, you know, I think that it's important to to remember that uh, the living situation is only one indication, but there are many other uh, roles that uh, caregivers fulfill. Fair point. Fair point. Now, I'm going to have to stop there because we have to pay the rent, so we have to take a break. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guests are Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Ella Amir. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com What if you were willing to be controversial, choosing kindness instead of judgment, willing to stand out from the crowd, being a leader in creating a new reality, even if others don't follow? You can make a difference. 
Start by tuning in to The Value of Controversy. Each week, our hosts will bring you the tools to help create the world that you want to live in and explore what's possible when you choose from the controversy of consciousness. Listen for The Value of Controversy every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. All the changes you make in your life are positive, whether you realize it or not. And you can continue to create even more change to improve your life by tuning in to Pure Talk Radio with host Bonnie Worth. Bonnie sees everything as a learning life experience, and it only gets better as you go. Embrace life with the passion and enthusiasm it was meant to be lived with. Learn and become inspired. Listen to Pure Talk Radio every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. let so many outside factors mold and shape our lives. Technology, instant delivery. We live in an on-demand world. What's happened to the compassion, the kindness, a better pace? Listen to Might Radio with host Gabriella Von Ray. We'll bring that kindness and compassion back to our world. Our guests come from around the world and we'll discuss what's being done and what we can do to bring our lives back to order. Might Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite. I'm Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Ella Amir. Our topic is guidelines for family caregivers caring for family members living with serious mental illnesses. Let's now discuss the implications of the national guidelines, observations, findings, and approaches. So, Chris, what are the national guidelines implications for family caregivers? Well, first of all, let me say that I agree with Ella that uh, many families are caregivers, even though their relative may not be living at home. The implications for the mental health care system is, is that the system at least the Mental Health Commission of Canada, acknowledges that there is a problem, and that problem is lack of meaningful engagement of family members. And that engagement can be uh, in planning and developing and evaluating of mental health systems to make sure that they work and are helping uh, patients. Uh, Families are frustrated by being left out of such planning, development, and evaluation. And uh, also there is a misunderstanding and misapplication by the mental health system of confidentiality laws or, or privacy legislation. And I'll talk more about that, that, that later. But as we move towards what's called collaborative mental health care, in which uh, multiple discipline uh, professionals come together, social worker, occupational therapist, psychiatric nurse, uh, 
and they do shared decision-making with the patient, I think, you know, families ought to be involved where possible and appropriate. And so those are huge implications for doing things in a different way uh, that are more supportive for the whole family. Right. Now, that takes me to Ella. So let's talk about the guidelines implications for the family members for whom family caregivers are providing family caregiving. Please talk about those implications. Ella. You're talking about the ill relatives? No, I'm talking, yes, that's right. Okay. Well, you know, I see that it's quite clear that if family caregivers are going to be well-informed, well-educated, properly supported, etc., they are likely to be able to offer long-term support uh, to their relatives in a way that will be much more uh, effective. So clearly, well-supported families are going to benefit their relatives. So I see that it's very uh, uh, straightforward associations. Uh, the, these guidelines are directed towards family caregivers, but as I said earlier, uh, they are going to benefit all stakeholders. First of all, they are going to benefit their ill relatives. Secondly, they are going to benefit themselves. And thirdly, they are going to benefit the system at large. Chris, what are the national guidelines implications for mental health care systems? And I, I'm using the word systems uh, meaning that there are many healthcare systems in North America. What are the implications generally for these mental healthcare systems, Chris? Well, the, the implications I think are, are that um, it's going to require mental health service providers to routinely encourage the involvement of families, you know, while respecting the confidentiality and privacy of the relative living with the mental illness. Um, I think it also will involve establishing protocols in hospitals for a clear process of involving family caregivers in discharge, discharge planning, follow-up care plans, including guidance about relapse, crisis prevention, and a recovery plan for both the person with the mental illness and the family uh, caregiver. And uh, in terms of confidentiality issues, I mean, uh, quite frankly, I think a lot of professionals hide behind uh, privacy laws, confidentiality laws, um, when in fact um, there's nothing that prevents uh, a doctor from listening and consulting with a family uh, member to talk generally uh, about mental illness and, and, and treatment. In fact, a survey was done in which uh, mental health patients were asked uh, would they would they have any problem with a family member being involved? And up to 90% said no. Another survey was asked of doctors how many asked the patient if they could engage a family member. And less than 50% of uh, those surveyed didn't even ask the patient. So... Um, that, that's very that, that's very important. So, but if a relative chooses not to involve a family caregiver, uh, then the service provider should uh, explore the reasons, uh, discuss it, and, and work therapeutically in such a way that they can help the patient at least identify uh, a family member that they most trust uh, to be able to help them in their recovery process. Ella. What are the national guidelines implications for healthcare professionals? 
healthcare professionals who work in the mental health care system and also for healthcare professionals generally like doctors and nurses who see patients not just with mental health illnesses right. but other things what are the right. implications for all of yeah. that well you know i think that it's important to to uh recognize that when we develop these guidelines uh we develop them uh, based on the trajectory of the illness and also on the trajectory of the uh of the caregiver's lifespan so basically we tried to encompass all the components that family caregivers require whenever they enter into the system. And, you know, very often there are not, well, you know, if there is a, a psychiatric crisis, they will uh, end up in the emergency uh, in psychiatry. But sometimes when there are warning signs uh, which uh, don't necessarily take them to psychiatry department, they will end up in, in the regular hospital. Uh, we recognize also that in order to provide proper support for families, we have to provide proper support for professionals. There are professionals, as you said, uh, who are general practitioners who don't necessarily have all the know-how uh, in able to be able to help families. And we don't necessarily say that we have, they have to do all the work that uh, mental health professionals should do, but they should be able to refer family caregivers to where they can get proper support. Um, it's uh, very similar uh, when we talk about professionals in the mental health arena. Uh, I can think about a, uh, the emergency ward in the psychiatric hospital where uh, people with psychiatric crisis are being attended to. But families very often fall through the cracks because uh, professionals there are inundated with the work that they have to do with uh, people who, who suffer from crisis. They don't have the time to deal with, uh, with their uh, caregivers, and sometimes they don't have either the interest or the expertise. So many of the guidelines touch on the information and the, uh, and the many pieces of, of uh, support that professionals themselves uh, deserve in order to best support family caregivers. Now, I want to go back to Chris to follow up on something that Ella just said, and that is um, when we're talking about healthcare systems, um, we're talking about very busy people, particularly mental health care systems, with all, with all the stresses and strains that go with um, anything involved with emergencies in mental health. Chris, what sorts of, I'm going to call it resistance, are you like? Do you think we're likely to encounter when the mental health care system is being persuaded to take more and better uh, care, pay more and better attention to family caregivers? What are the what resistances do you expect, Chris? Well, first of all, um, it, it needs to be understood that the guidelines are not mandatory. So that means that this, despite the value of the content, they have uh, they have the potential, you know, to become yet another shelved report, and 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 so re resistance will, will will come in terms of um, the healthcare system is overburdened already. Uh, healthcare providers are, are are burning out and stressed out. Uh, you know, I hear that a lot as I travel across uh, Canada. The demands are very high. Um, Resistance will be uh, from doctors. Um, will they be paid for consultation? So, for example, in Manitoba, um, our healthcare system doesn't 
reimburse the doctor for consultation sessions with the family. Um, also, there will be some other service providers that are, that are not that familiar with family support systems and uh, having not had much training in terms of how to work with families are going to sort of have to go back to school and uh, learn how to apply these guidelines. It's a, it's a new way of thinking. Uh, it's a different way of collaborating, and it's going to take more time, and it's going to take more patience. Right. Now, Ella, back to you. Um, we're talking now about healthcare professionals. I'm aware of at least one program where doctors are being asked to attend stigmatization, anti-stigmatization, and anti-discrimination courses by way of sensitizing them to the issues uh, that are faced by people with mental illnesses and also their families. Do the national guidelines have anything to say on that subject, and if so, what? Well, you know, again, I think that the... the um the guidelines are really a beautiful document, but I see that it really depends how they are going to be implemented. And I see that the beauty of these guidelines is that, you know, we are not trying to uh, suggest that, that the entire system has to be turned upside down. What we are saying, that the guidelines offer an opportunity for service providers, for policymakers, etc., to review incrementally and locally different programs that do exist or do not exist for family caregivers and at their own pace try to implement and to, to uh, adapt better programs. So I think that this is, you know, why I hope that if we're going to be strategic and if we are going to work together with the different stakeholders, we are going to uh, mitigate the potential resistance for the implementation of the, care, of the guidelines. My sense is that... Uh, it, it, the, the guidelines are, uh, are articulated in such a way that I see that it's very difficult to see what the benefits, what the potential benefits are for professionals, for the system, etc. So, you know, the, I don't think that we are expecting that, you know, psychiatrists are going to go to anti-stigma courses, but I think that we are expecting that people will have better sensitivity, better understanding, will be able to refer to the proper resources and work better together. So I think that, again, I don't think that there is, it's, it's you know, one, uh, uh, one formula fits all. I think that each each, uh, uh, each, each association or each hospital or each sector can take what uh, suits their situation and try to implement it gradually and incrementally. Right. Now, it's the time again when we take a short break. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guests are Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Ella Amir. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. We're coming back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Do you ever feel stuck on a hamster wheel? Constantly running but getting nowhere? Ready to try something different? The secret is actually quite simple. When you fall in love with yourself, everything else falls into place, personally and professionally. Each week... 
you can find out how to choose your energy and change your life with your host, Deborah Jane Wells. It's time to get unstuck, reclaim your personal power, and recapture your zest for living. Tune in to Choose Your Energy, Change Your Life, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. The challenges facing our teens today mean that more than ever, we need to be there to support them and encourage them. The Dr. Stem Show is here to provide discussions about topics that will help promote healthy relationships, self-image, and success for teens, parents, and the community. Our young people can achieve more in life than they ever dreamed possible. The Dr. Stem Show, hosted by Dr. Stem Malatini, will foster these discussions and encourage your participation. Listen every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific, and 9 p.m. GMT on Voice America Empowerment. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Ella Amir. Our topic is guidelines for family caregivers caring for family members living with serious mental illnesses. So, let's talk more about the implementation um, of the national guidelines by mental health care systems and service providers. So starting with you, Chris, what actions will be needed by mental health care systems that provide community-based mental health care if they're to implement the national guidelines? Chris? Well, it's going to take leadership. And so for those leaders that are involved in uh, community mental health care, uh, they have to help their uh, team members, their workers, employees to become familiar with the guidelines. They can do that providing, by providing seminars on the guidelines. Uh, in fact, they could uh, produce online webinars, teaching modules uh, in which professionals receive professional educational credits um, similar to the uh, anti-stigma modules that were developed by the Commission and the Mood Disorder Society of Canada. And then finally, to make it real, it has to influence policies, and uh, or otherwise it is just uh, another document. So to develop, to develop policies based upon the guidelines is what I would like to, to see, and policies then that would be observed by the various professional disciplines. Right. Ella, what actions will be needed by healthcare professionals such as physicians, nurses, and others whose work connects them to persons with mental illnesses uh, to implement the national guidelines? What, what, what's going to be needed for okay, them well, you know, to first do? First of all, they have to, uh, they have to be familiar with these guidelines. I think that this is the first step. The second step, uh, they have to be ready 
to explore uh, the different programs that they offer or they don't offer, and to try to partner and collaborate on improving these kind of programs. And I think that, again, you know, professionals who work in this field usually come to this field because they're interested in helping uh, uh, people. I think that if they will recognize that uh, their work is compromised by the lack of support that, that, you know, today many of them can't offer to families, uh, they should be interested in, in starting to implement some of these programs in their own, uh, in their own sectors. And uh, frankly, I think that um, the likelihood of implementing um, uh, improvement of services where service providers can have a say is probably uh, higher than changing policies and, uh, and, and laws. It's not that I don't think that this is important. I see that it's, it's critical, but I see that we have to work on number of levels at the same time. So at the same time that we are going to work with policymakers uh, in the different provinces and territories, uh, I, I think that we have to work in each community uh, on the implementation of what is possible, what is feasible in this community. Right. Chris, I want to ask you, a question that relates to something that you've mentioned several times already, and that is this question of getting information, uh, family caregivers getting information about their family members, especially in a, at a critical time when healthcare professionals and healthcare systems seem to, at times, to be very resistant to even having conversations with the family caregivers. So what actions will be needed to implement the guidelines observations about those problems? Chris? Well, certainly a, a, a better understanding of, of what privacy legislation says and does not say and so as to avoid the misinterpretation. Uh, families need information relevant to each stage of the mental illness, uh, they need information about the availability of psychoeducation programs. Uh, they also need information and tools on personal and financial planning. And then certainly when it comes to emergency rooms, uh, they, they need information uh, available there that describes uh, various support resources, whether it's AMI or the Schizophrenia Society. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, basically what we're talking about is um, we, we move so far so far to individualism uh, in North America and, and individual rights that we, we've forgotten about family as community. And basically what the guidelines is, is saying in a very human way is let's develop a relationship with the patient and let's develop a relationship with the family. And um, uh, indigenous uh, people, Aboriginal people have, have taught us much about that. Uh, the, the, the importance of that sense of connections and relations uh, in the healing process and the recovery process. Ella, what actions will be needed, again, to implement the national guidelines by mental health care systems which provide facility-based mental health care? And I'm thinking here of specialized hospital, long-term care facilities, and prisons. What actions are going to be needed? Well, you know, again, I think that the first step that they need to, uh, to, to recognize is that uh, what they are doing could be enhanced 
by adopting uh, some, at least, of these guidelines. I see that if uh, professionals do recognize that uh, they will be better off and their clients are going to be better off, they are likely to be open for the conversation. And, uh, you know, I can't quite imagine that it's very satisfying to uh, work with family caregivers who are uh, forever frustrated and, and, and uh, uh, ill-informed and very often pose challenges to, to professionals because they just don't have the information and the support that they're required. So I do believe that uh, in certain places there are probably professionals have already experienced the critical mass of frustration of family caregivers that hopefully uh, would uh, compel them to take a careful look and to try to, to improve, uh, improve the programs. Right. Back to you, Chris. I want to return to your, what you were saying about family caregivers' difficulties getting information out of and into the mental health care systems. Um, one of the arguments that I've heard is that the individual that is, the young adult, the adult, maybe the uh, older person, uh, is autonomous. And so that unless that person has given specific permission for the family caregiver to discuss or be discussed with uh, by the healthcare system, the healthcare system uh, refuses. Chris, first of all, have I relayed correctly the situation? And in any case, what do you think about it? Well, it's certainly not a problem uh, in, in terms of child and adolescent care uh, where the person is not deemed uh, an, an, uh, an adult. For example, the Manitoba Adolescent Treatment Center, I mean, they have no hesitation of consulting and working with the, the, the family. The problem does come, though, um, and I do believe in privacy legislation and, and, and confidentiality, um, uh, the doctor or the service provider is, is still obliged to follow the law and, and not uh, to be in contact with the family if the patient specifically says that they do not want that information shared with the family. Now, in some cases, like in British Columbia, uh, the legislation has been changed so that even as professionals can share information about their patient with another professional, you know, like a, 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 a doctor with a community mental health worker in BC, they've made it possible that family members uh, can be part of that, that circle when, in fact, the family member is a, in, in, a, in the state of a, a caregiver. Right. Ella, coming back to the same question, unfortunately, and that is, this whole, whole attitude about um, the difficulty respecting the autonomy, so to speak, of the person with the illness leads to situations which I've heard several times described in agonized terms on this show, which is that the family caregiver really doesn't want to have a confrontation with the young adult um, by asking for power of attorney or substitute decision maker or something like that. And it's because of the fear that the young person may leave home. And so therefore, when a crisis looks as though it's occurring, um, they do not have the authority um, 
because they haven't asked for it because of reasons of of concern uh, about their relationships with their loved ones. Ella, what's your thought? What are your thoughts on that situation? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, you're you're describing an extreme situation, but you know, I I will refer to the you know uh, uh, to to more. Um, frequent situations uh, where there is a uh, relying on confidentiality issues or, or laws, as uh, Chris uh, in, uh, mentioned earlier. And look, I see that it's really an anomaly because, you know, when you have a child with mental health or mental illness or any physical uh, health issues, there is really no question that the family is going to be included, it's going to be consulted, it's going to be, you know, supported, etc. When you have a senior with mental health or mental illness or physical, you know, issues, families are expected to be involved as well. It's only in this in-between zone, which is, mind you, uh, probably the largest uh, constituent, you know, uh, 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 group, uh, that families are excluded. Now, I think that the, the problem is not with the law. I think that the law is probably uh, a good law, and I think that uh, calls for the respect of confidentiality and the privacy, etc. I think that the problem is with the interpretation of the law. And I know psychiatrists for whom it has never been a problem. You know, they know how to talk with their client. They know how to talk with the family. Families are not interested in the secret life of their ill relatives. They're interested to know how best to help them, how to, you know, manage the effects of mental illness, etc. So I think that it's really, I think that we really have to, you know, recognize that I don't, I wouldn't really advocate for changing the law. But I would really hope that we will be able to work with psychiatrists and other professionals uh, so they can recognize the importance of involvement of family caregivers without compromising the privacy of their relatives. Thank you. Thank you both for that. It's time for the break again. This is Dr. Gordon Etherly, and my guests are Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Ella Amir. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Pile River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. We all want peace. We all desire a more meaningful life. We work hard to achieve these things, but at what avail? The key is authentic living with Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of the great spiritual experts of today and will provide wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your own I am. Your authenticity can give you miraculous gifts, but you have to know how to get there. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network. Core de Grace, the heart of grace, is an uplifting program hosted each week by Maria Rodriguez. Each show is made up of pieces of wisdom that you can use in your everyday life. Moving ever closer to transformation through inspiration. Your heart knows there is more to come. More beauty, more joy, and more truth. All you need to do is tune in. Maria will help you move toward who you really want to be. Becoming a more active co-creator in your world. Core to Grace is heard live Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Somerville and Dr. Ella Amir. Our topic is guidelines for family caregivers caring for family members living with serious mental illnesses. So now let's talk about what more you both individually want to do and see done through your own organizations to support family caregivers caring for family members with mental illnesses, but this time including children as well as adults. So Chris, what more would you like to do and see done through the Schizophrenia Society Society of Canada? Well, I think the Schizophrenia Society of Canada has, has it has existed from uh, 1979 as a family organization has to be more inclusive of uh, people with lived experience uh, with mental illness, that is, in terms of uh, being on Schizophrenia Society boards, uh, helping to develop policy. Uh, I think we have to acknowledge that not every person with a mental illness needs a caregiver. Also, I think uh, we have to help families create environments in which um, they're recovery-oriented. Because my passion, as you know, is for our mental health system to become recovery-oriented, helping people to get their lives back and not just mere symptom reduction. And so, therefore, we have to address unhealthy family systems. If, there's un- if the family system is unhealthy before the mental illness, it will be unhealthy after the mental illness, and that does not help the recovery process. Uh, we must continue to help families know how to advocate and to do it well. Uh, and then we need to address caregiver or compassionate burnout. And then finally, we need to train family support workers to work with other families. Uh, family members, family peer support workers are families who have, who have been where the family in the emergency room is, uh, the family that's got that diagnosis, and they can act, uh, provide hope actually uh, that things can get better and that recovery is possible. and. And um, just because it's that's a hell of a time today doesn't mean it will be that way in five years. Chris, just one clarification: recovery. How does recovery differ from cure, or are they both the same thing? Chris, no, not not necessarily. Uh, recovery is re- recovering a quality of life. Uh, it's re- it's recovering dignity. It's recovering hope. Um, it's recovering uh, from the losses, a loss of friends, loss of uh, uh, social inclusion. Um, it's recovering from stigma. Uh, for those with enduring mental illnesses, it's recovering from poverty and homelessness. So recovery is very holistic, and it involves the family as well. And, and, and that is basically, as, as Dr. Pam Forsyth, who's a psychiatrist in uh, New Brunswick, as she says, you know, it's just getting your life back. And, 
you know, people can have clinical recovery, meaning uh, they no longer have symptoms, and that happens. Or it can be, you know, personal social recovery in which people learn how to live beyond the limitations of the mental illness, but it takes the support of a caring community and family. Right. Um, now, Ella, what more would you like to do and see done through AMI Quebec? Well, you know, I can probably echo exactly what uh, Chris has said. Um, I, you know, I see that what we would uh, like to do is uh, to uh, spread our gospel as wide as possible to uh, have more collaborations, more partnerships, not only with uh, stakeholders in the mental health arena, but also in the school system, uh, in the workplace, and uh, everywhere where there are family caregivers and, of course, their relatives. I think that um, uh, our work is basically uh, carved out for ourselves with these guidelines it seems to me that uh, family associations are likely to be in the um, uh, in the forefront of the implementation or in the promotion process. I think that uh, with the best intentions, it doesn't seem to me that many service providers or many policymakers are going to, on their own volition, take these guidelines and decide to implement them. So I believe that family associations like AMI Quebec and like the Schizophrenia Society of Canada and others uh, are hopefully would uh, have the interest to go to their uh, respective communities, to speak with professionals, to see where there are openings, and together to try to, uh, to see how we can uh, make these uh, guidelines uh, work, you know, beyond just an uh, academic document. Right. Chris, what's your message for family caregivers caring for family members with mental illnesses? Chris? Well, um my message is um, for family members, take care of yourself first. Be mindful of your own mental health because you can't help your loved one if your mental health is deteriorating. Secondly is don't pathologize the person with the mental illness. In other words, interpret everything about the person as being the schizophrenia or bipolar. I mean, people can slam, people with mental illness can slam a door for the same reason we slam a door. We're in a hurry. And then uh, don't center your lives on mental illness, especially when you have other children. And celebrate the accomplishments of the person with mental illness. Uh, we, we fail to, to realize the hard work it takes uh, to overcome some of the symptoms and uh, regain lost skills. So celebrate those, uh, that progress. And then I would say avoid codependency and enablement. Um, and join a family support group and don't give up hope people who recover. Thank you. Ella, what's your message for family care? Again, you know, I can probably repeat what Chris said. I think that what I would also say, and, you know, we are talking so much about the challenges and the burden and the stress, et cetera, that family caregivers uh, are faced. I think that there are rewards for caregiving, and we know from different studies that uh, there are rewards for the family and there are rewards usually for individuals in the families. I think that it's really important to accentuate this potential rewards, and through proper help, uh, proper support, uh, help families uh, to experience these rewards. Because I see that many families are talking, you know, when they come to terms with the the, the challenges, that uh, it helps them to set up their priorities differently. It helps them to to have better 
family relationship, you know, it strengthened their bonds with uh, each other and so on and so forth. So I think that, you know, it's really important to guide and to coach families as they are um, uh, fulfilling their caregiving uh, responsibilities in order to be able to maximize their, you know, the effect of their caregiving, but also maximize, maximize the benefit from themselves. So they can really see that, you know, it's not all, uh, you know, uh, gloom and doom. And I think that, you know, one of the things that is really important um, uh, to, to impress on, on families is the need to accept what you can't change. I think that we very often um, mix love and acceptance. And I think that probably most families do love their uh, relatives, uh, whatever challenges they are facing. But sometimes they don't accept them. And I think that if we can, with the help of these guidelines, with the help of the, the uh, support that we will provide to families, help them to better accept their lot, I think that everybody is going to be better for it. Right. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this really remarkable episode. And I just want to say to you both, your individual messages are part of the broader message that the Commission's guidelines are conveying, which is that family caregivers matter, what family caregivers do is important, family caregivers are therefore important and should be cared for and cared about, and that there is hope, and it isn't all gloom, gloom and unhappiness, but there is a need for support. And that way forward, I think, is a message that the healthcare system will uh, adapt, though I think we have to work hard to get those messages out. And I hope this episode has been a little bit of use in that respect. Now, I want to say thank you to Chris and Ella for sharing with us your experience, your insights, and your advice, and on the part of everybody caring for family members with mental illnesses I wish you success every success, continuing success in your work I also want to say thank you to our listeners we'd like to hear your comments on this episode and from our listeners I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show our next episode will be bail hearings for family members with serious mental illnesses. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.